Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Scott Wurzbacher. And today we're going to talk about the weather, its unpredictable nature and resilience. Of course, anytime we're adventuring outside, we have to take the weather into account. And today's guest has followed her passion for understanding weather and turned it into purpose through resilience, which can also be described as the capacity to withstand or recover quickly from difficulty. Sarah Dillingham, Senior Director at the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, also known as IBHS, is with us here today. Sarah has advanced degrees in atmospheric science from University of Georgia and Texas Tech University. And she's worked as a weather producer and meteorologist at CNN and the Weather Channel where she spent nine years covering a wide array of disasters. Most recently, she's become a resilience evangelist at IBHS, where she works to face down challenges and help communities foster a safer, more resilient future. This is a story of how following your passion can turn into a purpose that literally helps change the world. And in Sarah's case, it all started with chasing storms, and I am so excited for this one. Sarah, welcome to the campfire. Thanks so much, Scott. I'm so excited. Uh, when you, you tell me about uh, the kind of guests that you have on this on this podcast, what we get to talk about, uh, I'm thrilled that I could be able to join and, and share a little bit of my adventure. I don't really think of myself as an adventurous person, but you know, when you get to talking, I was like, I guess there are some pretty cool things that I, I'm very lucky to have been able to do. So yeah, thanks for having me. Oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm calling you out right now, Sarah, because you don't <laughs> think about yourself as an adventurous person, but, but I'm looking at you on camera. Some folks are going to be listening to a podcast uh, and, and not have the video if you do jump over to um, the inspired uh, campfire website you can view the video but what i'm looking at right now is sarah sitting in front of a picture of a stick net that had, was placed back in her research days that is staring down a tornado and is it sad. is <laughs> it's epic looking and uh if that's not adventure i don't know what the heck is and 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 so we're going to get into some of that but sarah can we just start right with uh with what it is that you do yeah so um thanks so much for that great intro scott um yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, um, I've kind of uh, gone through a little bit of a career shift in the last year or so. Uh, I'm now at IBHS. So I'm working with the product design group, um, and we act as the science communicators. So you know, you mentioned I was a broadcast meteorologist. I did that for 12 years in a variety of locations, and um, both behind the scenes and on the air, um, done research as well. So it's kind of taking all of the information that I've learned about meteorology and the the power of Mother Nature and how those natural hazards now impact our ability environment. So I'm typically have been used to covering uh, the lead up and the forecast of these storms and the meteorological ingredients coming to, into play um, to create these events um, and then covering the aftermath of what is left behind. And, and unfortunately, that includes people's homes and livelihoods being uh, wiped away in some locations, some, some storms. Um, and so it's really cool to now be on the flip side of that um, and to have joined an organization like IBHS that is geared towards preventing disasters from happening in the first place. And by preventing disasters, I mean not necessarily stopping the weather events from happen, but what a disaster is, is when the weather impacts the built environment, but let's say you don't respond very well, which means there's a lot of damage and a lot of cleanup, um, a lot of destruction. Um, that is what makes um, a disaster is a, the a community's negative response to uh, a weather event. So um, at IBHS, we're geared towards making that um, a scene that you're not as familiar with, right? We want to reduce the impact of these natural hazards, and we do that through research, and it's a really cool place to be. Yes, and you get to work with Roy Wright over there mm -hmm. at IBHS, who uh, who was also a guest of this podcast. And so, and we did get to talk a little bit about Mother Nature on that episode, uh, which I encourage everybody to check out. 
Um, but you know, like the work that you're doing, it, it literally is, you know, making, making community safer, making property safer. I mean, it, it's a huge undertaking and, and, and it's, it's such an important thing. Um, but it all started like you wouldn't be able to be in the position that you're in had you not followed your passion for weather and right. this whole idea of chasing storms and whatever it is that you all are doing in that picture behind you. So I'm just wondering, could we could we talk about how you got into this work, and maybe could you share a little bit of your personal story? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I I have always loved weather. Um, I science was like my favorite subject in school. I remembered we would get to like those extra credit extra credit questions, and I was always like raising my hand, like I wanted to answer, I wanted to get it right. <laughs> um, I, I loved science then, and I love it now. Um, but I I had always loved storms. But I will say, when I was like a kid, like you know, maybe like five, six, seven. Um, Thunderstorms would scare me a little bit. Uh, you know, if there were going to be thunderstorms forecast in the night or if it was a big storm overnight, I'd get a little scared and I'd ask my parents if I could come, you know, put my sleeping bag on the floor because I just didn't want to be by myself. Yeah. Um, but then that fear eventually grew to just straight up fascination. And back in the day when I was growing up uh, in the late 80s and, and 90s, um, it wasn't as easy to just go on YouTube and Google tornado videos and, and look at the, you know, look at these monsters. Um, so it came down to like National Geographic specials or Discovery yeah. or something like that, plugging in the VHS tape and recording it. So <laughs> just to watch anything I could get my hands on. I remember um, even watching the Weather Channel as a kid growing up. Uh, I remember um, in 1992, I believe it was, Hurricane Aniki hit Hawaii. And okay. my mom was like, yeah, you were just going back and forth and be like, mom, the storm's moving this fast and the winds are this strong and, you know, it's going to make landfall this time. And um, so, yeah, even as a kid, you know, I certainly had an affinity for weather. So it you know, kind of grew into what it is now. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, you know, I love something that you said. You, you talked about thunderstorms being scary. And then you used the word, you said it turned into fascination. And I just like yeah. that kind of struck me. I, that's a great word, fascination. Can you just describe like what what was that like how does scary turn into fascination especially <laughs> um, for a child yeah you know i think maybe it comes a little bit to know with um a, a it comes a little bit with education right i mean we kind of we we know how it something can be a little bit scary when it's intimidating and we don't know how it works we don't understand it uh but as you kind of come to understand it you know um you kind of learn oh that's why this happens this is why this happens and then you can kind mm -hmm. of work through it in your mind to maybe justify like, okay, I, this seems scary, but knowing what it actually is, I, I'm actually safe. Like knowing, now I will say though, in, in all of these years, even from a kid to now, I don't do lightning. Lightning is cool and it fascinates me and I love it. And I have actually been, you know, as, um, in passion, I guess, uh, to drive out to a nearby parking lot in, that's going to open spaces if I know there's a good thunderstorm coming in. And I will just sit in my car with the windows up and I will just sit there and, and watch great lightning and maybe take take videos or photos. I've certainly done that before um, or go capture a photo of a good shelf cloud rolling in from a thunderstorm. So I, I definitely still do some mini chasing on my own. But but lightning is one of those things that always is like, uh, that that you can't see coming. I can see a tornado coming. Um, but lightning, that's just the split second thing, kind of the luck of the draw. So I'm not I'm not willing to bet my life on that one. And that's probably done. that's the only time I have fear for my life when I was, you know, deploying these instruments in front of storms was uh, when there was a lot of lightning involved. And, you know, my job is to go and put out this, you know, six foot metal uh, tripod uh, on top of a hill on the side of the road in western Oklahoma and hope for the best for two minutes. Um, so that one, I would not recommend, uh, but it was all in the name of science, right? You had to collect the data. So thankfully we survived and, uh, it's all good, but yeah, that's, that's one thing that still has always, it fascinates me and I'm in awe at it, but I do still fear that even though I know about it, I still fear it. <laughs> oh, I love it. And you used one of my favorite words, awe. we're going to get into that. Yeah. Um, so, but I love, I love that answer. Um, breaking down how scary turns into fascination. It's about understanding. Yeah. And I think that's like, I think that's cool. I think we could talk about that quite a bit because anything that scares someone, if you understand that thing, yeah. it does turn into that fascination. And it's like, the, it's curiosity is kind of the underpinning of that, right? So like, yeah. I'd love to talk about your curiosity for weather and, uh, and then some of the adventures that you had in the early days, maybe even including what's happening in this picture behind you. Could you, yeah. could you tell us about the early days of, of, uh, of chasing storms? 
Yeah. And, you know, one, one thing of uh, curiosity that I'll point on getting into that is, um, I mean, I remember uh, growing up before I had taken any meteorology courses in, in college and really started to learn about the, the weather and the, the thermodynamics and the physics and uh, all happening in the atmosphere. Um, as I'd be driving down the road and on vacations or whatnot, and I'd be looking out the window and I would be staring at these large cumulonimbus clouds. And they might not necessarily be the, the big large ones that are already precipitating and producing lightning and a full blown thunderstorm. But I could see these like cumulus clouds. And as I'm walking, driving down the road, I'm just staring at them. And I just, and I'm like, I swear that that thing is moving. Like if I just stare at it, like it's moving. So then fast forward a few years later, when I actually get into uh, taking weather courses and learning about it, well, they actually are growing before your eyes. There are plumes of air bubbles all over. You, know, you can't really see them, but that's essentially what a cloud is. The bubble of air rises and um, the temperature of that uh, parcel of air that we call it, that bubble of air, uh, the temperature cools to the dew point temperature of the surrounding environment. And at that point, the, the parcels continues to expand, but the way energy transfer works, um, that then starts to condense into liquid cloud droplets, which develops those white puffy cumulus clouds that you see that can then come and turn into thunderstorms. So what I was watching was actually a, a potential thunderstorm developing in front of my eyes. And so I'd encourage somebody, maybe on the summer afternoons when thunderstorms are in the forecast, you know, weather pop up or otherwise, just maybe if you see those growing cumulus clouds, take a couple minutes to just stand there and just watch it and see if you can see it kind of like growing in different bubbles, uh, you know, uh, developing on different parts of the storm because that on the or on the cloud because that's absolutely what's happening. So that was something I was like, oh, I didn't know that was the thing, but now I do. Um, that is so cool. I love that. And I'm, I'm just imagining like, you know, for me as a kid, like I'm looking up at the clouds, like making shapes and thinking like what yeah. they're like, what they look like. And I'm just envisioning that you're thinking about the science behind what's actually happening there. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you just kind of piece it together. And so um, I guess, and because you have this, this, this drive and this passion, you're like, I love thunderstorms and I'm going to school to, I, it was, um, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but it, it was kind of a, that turning moment, you know, when I was a teenager, um, I was, you know, I said, I'd always loved weather at this point. And then of course, 1996, I believe rolls around and the movie Twister comes out. Yes. And so, yeah. Um, so the movie Twister comes out, you know, and I didn't really know the premise. All I saw was holy cow, there's a movie about tornadoes. I have to go see it. And it's like, forget the plot. I don't care. There's storms that we're going. So we go in and I see what the movie is all about and uh, and get through the plot and everything, which I love. I still, I could quote every line probably if you gave me a scene, I could probably quote it. Um, but I just loved that movie and we got out of that. And I told my mom, I was like, I'm going to do, I'm going to be a storm chaser. And she's like, uh, well, she's like, I don't know if you really make money being a storm chaser. She's like, I think you have to be a meteorologist to do that. And I was like, oh, yeah, duh. I was like, okay, so I'm going to be a meteorologist. And I was 13 and I never changed my mind. Um, and so I, you know, found myself in, in college studying it and then in graduate school. Um, I was blessed enough to get out here on, in, in the plains and be a part of the amazing program at Texas Tech and get to do field research and actually physically get out there and chase down these beastly thunderstorms and supercells on the plains and then deploy instruments in front of them and, and gain data, collect data uh, and gain knowledge about how these storms work in, in the hopes that we maybe someday could get to, um, you know, on a given day saying, hey, on this day in this part of the state of Oklahoma, um, supercells are going to be forming, which we're there now, but saying like this supercell is going to produce a tornado. We're not there yet, but we are all collecting this data in the hopes that we can get even better at forecasting. Yeah. I, I got to pause for a second because this is like, I, I just, I want to like, I just want to stop and, and really just kind of savor this for a sec, because like you, you're 13 years old, you see, you know, you already know you love weather, you're fascinated by it, you love storms, but you see this movie and like that movie inspires you to follow your passion. And now like you're literally doing work that is protecting people from disasters and this kind of weather that you would now have accumulated all this knowledge about. Like that, I just, I think that is so amazing. And that's like one of the things that this podcast is all about is about following that voice inside that calls us to adventure. And you've done that. You've really followed your passion. It started with a movie, which is so cool, but you followed that. Like, can you just like, what, what is that like for you? Because not everybody gets to follow their passion and not everybody yeah. chooses to follow their passion, but you did. Yeah, I think it's um, 
it's one of those things that I, I think, you know, you've, you probably have all heard the phrase, um, you know, I think you want to love what you do, you know, for your job. Yeah. I mean, you know, not to say that there's not a purpose in, in a, a broad range of jobs that you can do, but I, I don't imagine many people that are in the tax tax field say like, I'm just so excited about taxes. I love doing taxes, but it's their job and they like it enough and it, 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 produ it provides a service, right? And they're, they're happy to do it and, and they, you know, they probably enjoy it on some level, right? Because that's a, that's a job that you have to enjoy some of it, right? Um, to do it. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm blessed that um, the, the job that I do allows me to have that kind of uh, adventure. And yeah, it's been, and I will say it's, it's hard to sometimes think about it like that, because I definitely thought about that. And I've kind of had to reflect on this on, my, on myself going throughout my career at different stages. And um, it's like, when I got into school, I was just so eager to learn and to get the right answers and to fully understand it and fully grasp it. And it was really the, my passion for weather that got me through the, wow, this math is really stinking hard. Um, you know, the math and the physics and the, the uh, just the, uh, the dynamics. Yeah, I think it was my passion for weather and knowing that this is what I was meant to do. Like God called me to do this. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. Why is it so hard? And, but, but that, that's what comes with it, right? You, it, everything doesn't come easy just because you love it. Um, there are challenges that you're going to face. Um, there's a lot of math and science that you have to learn in meteorology. And, you know, like I say, I'd always loved science. And it's one of these things where like, if I, if I really like it and I tend to be good at it, but then all of a sudden it's not so good. You're like, why is this so hard? I thought this is what I was meant to do. But, um, but it's just, it just kind of reinforces your purpose and, and just kind of was like, I really do still want to do this. I'm going to push through this because I know this is what I want to do. I love it too much. Um, and it's, it, it requires the dedication. And I mean, I, um, I sometimes feel like that through different stages of my career, I have forgotten that sometimes we, everybody kind of gets bogged down in the, the day to day, you know, like, oh, this is so stressful. It's like, oh, you know, I just wish I could go enjoy a thunderstorm and not work these crazy hours at the, <laughs> you know, news station to, yeah. to cover all these storms. But, um, but it, it's just one of those things that you just kind of have to stop and look back and say, but this is, this is what you set out to do and you're doing it and just kind of yeah. look back at that and appreciate it. Um, so I, I would encourage people to just take time and it's so hard, right, to take any time in the world today. Everything moves so fast, but um, it really does kind of help you reset. And it certainly helps me to reset to just think yeah. about like, wow, I get to do some really cool stuff. Um, and I'm really thankful that of all of the difficult things that I've gone through up to this point, it's all been for a reason to make me better um, equipped to do the jobs that that I'm that I'm now called to do. So um, it's been a process, but it's a good one. And it, I just don't want to forget to reflect on that. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. Did you know that the members of my real estate team, W Realty Group, are listening to their own voices that call to adventure by setting big goals? Some of those goals include planning trips to Bali and the Kingdom of Bhutan, buying investment homes and running the Chicago Marathon. At W Realty Group, we support and encourage these big goals and wanna help turn them into reality. We're currently looking to add new members to the team. If you know a great real estate agent in the Charlotte, North Carolina area that would benefit from being part of our team, please send a text, an email, or give me a call. And know that when you support W Realty Group, you're also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. I think that's, I think that's really wise. And um, I love how you said that essentially what I heard was it was your passion that essentially fueled you to get through the hard work. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. And I, I guess too, um, I remembered, I, I, I don't, it was some car ride with my family, I think. And I, I mean, we may have been driving through the mountains or something on vacation. And I was kind of looking at where I was going to go to school and, you know, I'm sitting there and I was like, Oh yeah. I was like, I'm going to go to the university of Georgia. And, you know, at the time I was like, in my mind, it was like, I'm, and I'm going to play in the red coat band and I'm going to study weather. Um, and then I, later I was like, and I'm going to go to grad school and I'm going to chase storms. And, you know, and I just kind of decided, I mean, I know not everybody has that kind of clarity um, and that's okay. Sometimes that happens later in life for people. Um, so yeah, I was lucky enough to have it happen early on and kind of stick to that. And that's not to say that you can't change your motivations because I kind of did, right? I mean, I totally changed my career path and got into a new one. So I don't want people to be discouraged either and thinking like, well, I don't know what I want to do yet. And I'm at this stage of my life and I should know. 
well, not everybody does. Not everybody has that epiphany moment. So it's okay if it happens later in life, as long as you're enjoying what you're doing in the moment. Yeah. And well, and I also think it's important that, you know, everything that you do up to that point in your life is going to fuel what, what comes next. Right. And so like you, you said you've pivoted in your career, but it's because of your prior knowledge that allows you to be able to do what you're doing now. And just as a caveat, uh, I believe that there probably are people that absolutely love taxes and are fueled by taxes. <laughs> they <laughs> might be, yeah, or right to each their own. You never know. It's, it's just not me and it's just not you. But my CPA right. loves his tax work. I can tell you that for sure. Um, so I want to let's get into chasing storms because this is the exciting stuff. So what I want to know is how accurate is the movie Twister? And can you mm -hmm. take us on this journey of chasing storms? Yeah, so it's one of those things where, yeah, I love the movie Twister, but there there are some things that as you're going through it as a scientist, you're like, okay, well, I know now is like that was wrong or that was misinterpreted. <laughs> and you know, I and I will say now the 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 graphics that they used in the movie of Twister, I still think they far outweigh any other um tornado uh type um renditions that I have seen in, in, in graphics. I know graphics have gotten so amazing in the last couple of decades since this movie came out, but I felt like that crew got it right. Nice. Um, and I still think it's some of the best representations of like close up what like a wedge tornado might look like in the clouded structure that you kind of get around that. But, but just seeing how they kind of maybe, um, because they, they did kind of embed themselves. So I mentioned that this uh, project that I was on this chasing storms project, what that was called for short was vortex two. Um, it stands for the verification of the origin of rotation in uh, super or see in thunderstorms. I think or see, yeah, in thunderstorms experiment vortex. Okay. Vortex, um, easy. Yeah. So this was the second installation that I was a part of in 2009 and 10, but there was a first one in 1994 and 95. And the Twister um, production team uh, they embedded themselves with the first vortex. Um, so they were actually with the scientists out on the planes trying to capture real footage of, of severe storms and, and hail and maybe tornadoes. Um, and unfortunately, that season was all those that project was also somewhat unsuccessful in, in capturing some tornadoes. So it was a really difficult season as well, much like the 2009 season of the second installment of Vortex 2. Um, and so th so there was an effort to try and communicate the science correctly. But I think there may have been some um, a little bit of uh, um, leeway that they may have taken on some of the scientific principles. Like, for example, if you're familiar with the movie, there's um, they're talking about um, a radar hole and they're kind of talking about, oh, yeah, like our data is incomplete. Um, we just the, the storm just disappeared and the tornado disappeared. Like, no, that's not what that is. Uh, what that means is, you know, think about a, a weather radar that you might look at on your on your phone, sure. your weather app. Um, what you can do is like they have a beam that shoots around it goes 360 degrees and it's you know sending energy back to the particles that are in the atmosphere in which case it's going to be rain if that's what you're seeing on the radar um and so but when you get right over top of the radar the radar beam doesn't point up so there is a little hole right atop right. where the radar sits on the image that you look at when you see if rain is coming that's not going to have any data and that's what we call a, a kind of a radar hole. It's the cone of silence is what they called it. And that's what the actual term is. Okay. But they, they call it the cone of silence as in like, oh, suddenly the tornado is full blown and all of a sudden it just disappears and goes back up into the cloud. That's not what happens. Um, but it, it was a correct science term. It was just a little play on the interpretation. I think they took a little bit of levity there on that, <laughs> on that one from the... <laughs> yeah, from the movie side, which, you know, whatever. I still love the movie. Didn't didn't stop me from watching it. But but just little things like that. that. Yeah, you get to watch them. But that doesn't mean I still don't love it. And I would still watch that. I have actually put that on for hours at a time. Just playing in the background is just background music and just do what I need to do. Um, whether that be study or do housework, I have been known to do that. I haven't done it in a while, but I have. I love, I love it, folks. We're talking to a meteorologist that drives around in her car listening to the soundtrack of Twister. I mean, that is dedication. <laughs> that is so cool. Um, all right. So take me out into the field. You're, 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 you're chasing a storm here. Maybe, maybe mm -hmm. this picture that we're looking at here, like what, what does that feel like? What is going on? How close are you getting to it? 
Yeah. So I'll tell you a little bit about how the process works. When we go out into the field, um, yeah, you can do things that are uh, recreationally, you know, that aren't a part of like a scientific experiment. But, you know, if I'm on an experiment like this Vortex 2 project, um, yes, that was a larger one. But just say if you've got your team, the way you'll start off the morning is you'll have a weather briefing. And that's when you guys kind of get together over breakfast in whatever hotel you manage to, to find in the middle of the plains. Um, and you're having your little continental breakfast and you're looking at the wet, latest weather models and you're looking for your target area. So what you'll do the night before is you'll kind of keep an eye on the forecast and you'll find a, a target area that you're going to plan to pursue the next day. And you want it to be within driving distance because you spend, I will say, for all the exciting times that you get in storm chasing, there are hours upon hours hours upon hours spent driving in the car and just sitting trying to get there and then even then it's some sit and wait for the storms to go um so in the morning you're kind of having this weather briefing and you say okay we're heading to my friend will love that i'm using this one altus oklahoma that's his favorite uh, chasing area in southwest oklahoma but we'll say yeah okay we're going to head towards altus um, and target some storms that are forecast in, in the high resolution models to form there later today so we'll go and position ourselves there, um, sometimes maybe a couple hours ahead of time. And you know, when we get to where we're going, if there's no storms, well, we've got to wait for the storms to fire because we want to be out in advance of them and try to catch up with them so that when they do become mature cells, uh, if we're targeting them to deploy instruments in front of them, we have to put ourselves in the right place ahead of the storm. We got to make sure we have a good road network so that one, we can get in and out safely. And two, that we can deploy our instruments in the, the right orientation that we want. If we're looking for a specific feature, let's say if we're trying to, um, what we were doing in this experiment, we're trying to capture what's happening in that area of the storm where the tornado forms, right underneath that mesocyclone, that rotating updraft. And so I'm going to want to put my instruments at a certain spacing, at a certain orientation, whether they be in a line or in an L shape. And so I'm going to have to know the road network too. So it's all these little background things that you're thinking about when you're sitting there. And so we get to use that time while we're waiting for convection and storms to fire. We get to use that time to really map out, you know, what is our plan going to be? And we might start out with an experimental, we will start out with an experimental plan that we tend to follow. But, you know, sometimes you have to make that meet where you are. And so we use that time and we'll just sit there and wait. We just kind of park ourselves at the you know closest gas station. We've got snacks and you know restroom and all that stuff readily available. And then we just sit and wait. And then when the time comes, then we're um, all hands all hands on deck and all is a go. Um, once we identify this, the target storm that we're going to deploy on, we get to where we need to be and then we start deploying. And it is very methodical. We don't just slap them out wherever. Um, depending on what we're sampling, we might have half mile spacing or two mile spacing. Um, and that can vary again, depending on the feature. And so you deploy your array of instruments. And then once you're done with that, you can get out of the path of the storm and get into a safe place. And now you can watch the storm roll by. Oftentimes we'll sit there and, and watch to see if it's gonna produce a tornado um, and you know make sure that we're a safe distance, obviously. But if it's gonna produce a tornado or strong winds or something like that, you know, as long as you're in a safe place, we'll kind of sit there and go through the storm. And then when it's over, we go back and collect the, the instruments. And then um, depending on what our situation is, we can either load up the data immediately on site and maybe start looking at it, or it might have to wait until we get home um, but we're also documenting where we put out the instruments um, in like latitude, longitude and, and heading, which direction they're facing and what the exposure is like. Because when I put an instrument out, it needs to ha not have any blockage. I can't put it in front of a tree and say that it's going to get the true sample of what the wind speeds were, if that's the variable that I'm sure. looking okay. at. So all these little things that you have to consider. And so we use that data to then go pick them up and collect them. And we make any kinds of site notes that that we need to and say like, oh, you know, this was the best place we could find, but note that on the northwest quadrant there, there's a block of trees or something by us. So that way we know when we're looking at that data later on, we have an idea about what the site looked like and can say, yes, this data is, is good to go. We can use it or it might be a little bit muddy. We might have to take it with a grain of salt. So that's kind of like a big over um, overview of the process. But I think the most exciting thing happens when you've when you've identified the target and you start that deployment because it's a race against the clock. You're not out there taking five minutes like, well, you know, it looks right. Yeah. Yeah. I think <laughs> that's, that's right. good. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking, it's like two minutes or less uh, per instrument, depending on what it is. These stick nets, the fastest when I was um, reliving that lightning storm earlier, 
that we had to deploy one of these things in. Uh, that was about a minute and a half deployment, if that. Uh, that was a very fast one. So on average, they're probably about a minute and a half to two minutes to deploy those. So we're making time because, you know, we've got to get it out um, before the storm gets there um, and get out to a safe spot before it passes the array. So um, it's it's very exciting to do that. And also, you know, if you're if you're close enough to the storm and you can see whether or not it's going to produce a tornado, which on um, the last deployment that I was um, lucky enough to be on, it did. It was out in the middle of a field, which was great. That's where we want them to be. Um, so we we're able to see that and know that, hey, we just collected data of this storm and it produced a tornado. It's just it's just really cool. And it, it is the coolest thing that I get to do in my career, I think. Yeah. So, okay. So in the movie, obviously what's so exciting about that movie is, you know, your heart rate gets going. It's like, first yeah. of all, the, the, the laymen that are watching this movie, we're still in the scared phase, right? Cause we don't understand. So we're not fascinated. We're just scared. Right. 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 So you're, you're kind of beyond that as the scientist. So, you know, you probably have a better understanding, but you know, what's great about that movie is here comes the twister and it yeah. gets the, 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 the observer, their heart rate's going. It's like, oh my gosh, this there's a limited amount of time here. Like, mm -hmm. is 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 that what it's like in the field? Do you ever experience that? Yes, yeah, certainly it is. Um, you know, especially if something um, because our, our road network, right? We're really dependent on that. So we know if, let's say, there's a storm that's doing something, you know, that that we need to capture the data on. That's why we want to get those uh, instruments out in such quick fashion because we need to we. We don't really want to do this too far in advance because when we're dealing with supercells, they their motion can sometimes deviate to the right a little bit. Um, and when they do that, that means the rotation is generally intensifying in those supercells. So they can deviate to the right a little bit. So we don't necessarily deploy too far out in advance because then if it changes direction, we could miss our instrument array entirely. So we might go out um, for, for this particular deployment, the, the pic photo that I'm sharing, this was the team that was deploying the course scale array in which we went out there probably 40 minutes or so uh, ahead of when the certain part of the storm was expected to, to cross that, um, that instrument array. Now, this one that I'm showing, this one actually ended up producing a tornado a little bit uh, faster than we anticipated. So yeah. we were in danger in this photo. We were just in the perfect spot to capture that part of the, the storm that was going to pass over. The tornado was actually uh, to our north relative to our location there. But um, generally, that will go out further in advance. And then the more nimble StickNet teams, which um, that was the team I was on in 2010 with this project, um, we went in closer to about 20 minutes or so out ahead of the storm. And so we're right there kind of in, in the nitty gritty, um, right underneath the storm, um, trying to get those instruments out. So, um, yeah, we, you definitely feel that like fast paced energy and you're rushing out. Now, uh, we might not be, you know, having dinner somewhere and we have to rush out of the car that quickly because if there's a target that's already out there, we're, we're on the storm. Um, but there is very much a, a rush to get there from a driving perspective and knowing we, we've got to still follow traffic laws, right? And still stay in within those speed limits and be safe. And so that's why like timing is just so critical because, you got to safely get there, but you got to do it in enough time that you get to the part of the storm that, that you need to observe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any, uh, any close calls out there? Any, uh, any, any kind of, um, too close for comfort type experiences? Um, I don't think I really had anything other than the lightning. Um, I don't <laughs> think that I had anything where I was like, we're not safe. Um, yeah. I think that, probably the the closest call that wasn't like from a, a um, an endangering from a life perspective. Um, we were pretty close to taking some large hail um, and we had to uh, take refuge underneath a, a bank awning um, in there. And unfortunately, our truck did get a little bit peppered on the sides from some nickel sized hailstones. But, um, you know, so you kind of have to explain those to the rental car companies when you... <laughs> Yeah, right. When you return those vehicles, you know, we try not to do anything to them, but sometimes that happens. Um, so, yeah, we had a close call there with uh, some larger hail. We were probably a couple minutes out from seeing like the two inch hail. And that's the kind of stuff that can knock out windshields and, and damage instruments. It actually did damage one of our instruments. I will say that is um, that's one of the cooler things that I saw. Um, you you kind of have these like marquee storms that you deployed on. Obviously, this tornadic one was one. Um, but there was another one in um well, the, the hailstorm that I was referring to just now, that one was in Nebraska. I want to say outside of Scott's Bluff, maybe. Okay. And we go back to pick up this probes. And, you know, I'm looking at this probe like, man, what, something's not right. 
And we looked in the, the top plate of one of the probes had totally been knocked off um, from a hailstone. Um, and actually we have these uh, fiberglass data acquisition boxes that are attached to these instruments. And for those of you that see the video, you can see this in the, um, the image behind me. But these data acquisition boxes, they're hard fiberglass and these hailstones dented the fiberglass box and wow. unfortunately allowed water to get inside the instrument. So um, that instrument was damaged and one of them was toast because it, it took a good hit on the top from, from a hailstone and just, just basically broke the instrument. Um, and so it was just kind of cool to just see that. I was like, wow, this thing took a beating, but that's why we put out the probe so that humans don't have to stand yeah. out there because we don't want to get in those storms. Yeah. So it's just kind of those like cool moments that stand out. But no, if we're, if you're doing it right, you know, you don't really have those close calls, but now, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt, right? I mean, mother nature is powerful and um, you just got to make sure that you've got all your bases covered because you don't want to be caught unaware. No, you don't. So for you, somebody that that just really has a passion for this, when you're standing out there and you're in a storm, right, or you're you're watching a storm uh, about to happen, or you're watching a, a tornado about to happen, what is that like for you? What does that feel like? Yeah, you know, the first time I, I mean, I, I grew up in uh, I grew up in North Georgia. Okay. So I've you know, experienced thunderstorms, pretty good thunderstorms, rocking and rolling every summer, severe thunderstorms, like, you know, like, like clockwork. Um, but when you experience a supercell for the first time, you just see it. You don't even have to go through it, but you just see it. Um, the first one I saw, it's my first year in graduate school um, at Texas Tech, 2009. And my office mate and I and another colleague of ours uh, in the department, we had our afternoon free and there were some storms from the forecast. We're like, hey, let's go chasing. We're like, okay. Um, so we get in the car and we drive five hours to Southwest Oklahoma, close to Altus, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And, um, this was not a tornado producing supercell thunderstorm. It was just a, a run of the mill supercell, severe thunderstorm, you know, producing rain, hail, lightning, thunder, wind. Um, but we just sat at it from, sat and looked back at it from afar. And we were in the middle of a field, open plains, no cars around. We were one of the only cars on the road. And you know, we were just sitting there off the side of the road and, you know how when you walk out during a snow event and it's just quiet and almost sounds like a muffled uh, muffled hush over the outdoors it is the exact same on the plains when it's just you and the wind and nothing else and the silence can be deafening until you hear the rumble of that supercell that beast of a storm that like seems to go from this horizon to this horizon and it's just this rotating beast of a storm and it's just majestically sitting there with the thunder rumbling. And we actually had the sun that was setting underneath it. So, mm -hmm. you know, you got this great contrast of the dark cloud in front of you. And all of a sudden, this bright orange ball just kind of reveals itself underneath this cloud and hits this beam of light. It just shoots out in your eyes and you're looking at this thing. That was probably the most like that was the most amazing um, experience I had up to that point in my life because just, I was in awe. You know, you talk about that yes. word awe. Yes. I didn't have, I didn't have the words to do. I mean, I'm getting chills now talking about it, but it was just so impactful. And I was just so blown away. I was just like, wow, this is amazing. Like I'm, I, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. Yeah. So I, and thank you for bringing up my favorite word <laughs> and the definition that I love the most for awe is a reverential respect mixed mm -hmm. with fear and wonder. Yeah. And I, I feel like in this case, what we're talking about right now with weather and especially severe weather really epitomizes this definition. And yeah. I'm just wondering, what, what is it about weather that causes us to feel that awe? You know, I don't know. I wonder if it's just because it just seems so, I mean, right. You think about how I mean, here at our lab today, it's in the low 80s. It's mid-February. It's in the low 80s. It's a beautiful, breezy day. Um, but then fast forward later in the in the summer, and we could have a, a, a supercell thunderstorm bearing down on us with two-inch hail. Um, I know our hail researchers would be interested to see that for sure. We can collect some data there. But I think it's just the fact that you can have such gentleness and beauty from mother nature and from the weather and then also this ferocity on the other end this and i know i and i don't want to i don't want it to go without saying yes i'm in awe of the weather and i'm fascinated by it and i think it's beautiful but i understand that it has a destructive side yeah. and i am i'm i'm grateful that i have not been personally affected by that but i have seen in my career 
hundreds and hundreds of people um, that have been negatively impacted. And that tornado isn't so beautiful to them, right? Because it destroyed their livelihoods. It potentially took family members. So it's as meteorologists, we kind of have that internal struggle a little bit. Um, we are in awe at the weather and the awesomeness of it. And we get excited when there's a thunderstorm, but we never want to see anything bad happen. That's why we always are like, if you want a tornado, let's go to the plains and see it out in the middle of nowhere where it can't do any do anything bad. That's what we want to see. We, we, we hate it when we have to see and cover them, these negative events that happen um, and affect people's lives. But yeah, I think it's just that the the shift, it can go this beautiful, um, beautiful day. And then you get the ferocious nature, um, you know, of, of tornadoes or something moving through a town. Um, and I think that is kind of what makes uh, people so um, impressed and just kind of in awe of the weather itself. Yeah. Well, and when we started out, you talked about going from scary to fascination. Mm -hmm. and, I, and maybe we could say that scary and fear are related, right? And fascination yeah. and wonder are related. And that's all, right? The fear and the wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think too, as long as um, you can, I think the key thing is that you always need to, especially as a meteorologist, knowing what we know about it, you just have to respect mother nature and, and like respect the weather, I should say, respect the weather because it can be um, beautiful and calming and, and, and just a gentle, beautiful, sunny day. Uh, and it can be really bad. Um, so I think it's just having that respect and knowing what it's capable of. And I think sometimes, um, people, because they're not, uh, they don't experience severe weather a lot. They might not necessarily have the respect of the damage that it can do. And we try to communicate this through our science and through our education, you know, even as a broadcast meteorologist, I mean, yeah, we're telling you about the forecast, but we also do the science behind these events, right? Because we want you to understand the weather. We want to under, we want you to understand why we're telling you the weather is going to be bad because so many times we've had, we've heard people say, I just didn't know it was going to be this bad. I never thought this would happen to me. And you, you try so hard to make sure that people aren't caught unaware like that. We want people to be prepared. We want people to be educated and understand that um, the weather can do some, some really gnarly things that is sometimes out of our control um, as far as like how, at least how our buildings respond to it. You know, we can control that which build better, but, um, but yeah, I think it's just, we, we want, we want people to know what we know so that they understand the risks that uh, weather can bring. Yeah. And I think this is a great point to jump into resilience. So Roy Wright was on this podcast, CEO of IBHS. And I asked him the question about um, whether the work that you guys do has to do with uh, kind of man versus nature. And he mm -hmm. broke it down really, really succinctly and said, mother nature wins. Yeah. But, but, but can we talk about resilience? So, so we know mother, mother nature wins, but what is resilience? Yeah. So like Roy alluded to, I mean, we can't, we can't stop supercells from, from plowing through a town with, with a tornado. Um, we can't stop damaging winds. Uh, what we can do is we can build our homes and businesses and our structures to a level that withstands those, those forces. Um, and people see these strong tornadoes come through. And I mean, understandably that like these, these EF4, certainly the EF5 tornadoes that come through these, these high end events, um, you're going to see some damage from those, even if you've got a, a resilient structure, unless you've got some concrete fortress, an EF5 is going to do some damage. But now these EF012, even three, there are a lot of small tweaks, small mitigations that you can do to a home that can make it withstand that, those winds much better to where, you know, you might not see you know, half your roof coming off in an EF2 tornado. You might see some lost shingles or some siding that's popped off. Um, so we can mitigate these, these damage modes, these failures that happen. Um, and it doesn't have to be a concrete fortress to do it. We just need to implement the structural um, engineering that, you know, part of what IBHS's work does is we can take these full-scale homes and, and business-like buildings, we can put them in our test chamber and we can crank those winds up to over hundred miles per hour. We can blow rain at them. We can shoot hail at them. Uh, we can burn buildings down if we want to. And all of that is just to show what are the vulnerabilities in our buildings that we can build stronger. Like it could be as simple as using a ring shank nail versus a smooth nail, which you might not know of, but a ring shank nail is going to have these little ridges and these rings on it. That's going to help lock those wood fibers in. So when you nail that in, it takes like 
two times the force, I think, to pull it out. So if you think you've got an entire roof that's using these nails, how much stronger is that roof going to be to prevent uplift when wind gets inside your home and tries to literally pop your roof off? Um, so there's these little small little mitigations that make a big impact in how our structures respond. And that's certainly what we focus on day to day here at IBHS. Yeah. So Sarah, you've gone from, you know, following your passion and and going from fear to understanding to, mm-hmm. you know, to fascination. Right. And then, as you said, pretty recently, you've, you've had a chance to pivot in your career. Right. But it's because of all of that past experience and knowledge that you've had that has allowed you to move into this field that's now helping make communities safer. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, like as you as you think through like kind of your life and that progression from seeing the movie Twister to now being somebody that is helping make the world safer, like what what I'm sure you've seen some stories of transformation. How has that mm-hmm. progression in your life and your purpose? What are some stories that you've seen in terms of how? Um, you know, people's lives are better because of the work IBHS is doing. Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, having covered um, countless tornado events and hurricanes and and floods, um, I've seen it all. Um, I've seen entire homes wiped off foundations from storm surge and Hurricane Michael. And I I specifically remember uh, that was in 2018, November 2018 or October, I believe. Um, I'm sitting, I'm sitting there covering um, the aftermath of this storm with uh, Dr. Rick Nav, who's one of the experts at the Weather Channel. He's the former director of the National Hurricane Center. So he, he knows his stuff when it comes to hurricanes. Um, and we're sitting there and we're listening to our field reporter, Justin Michaels. Um, he is interviewing these families who have lost everything they had. Their homes are now a pile of sticks um, on the side of the beach because 15, 17 feet of storm surge wiped it off its foundation. Um, and I just, we, I mean, we were both kind of struggling to hold back our emotions. I mean, I certainly teared up just listening to these poor people trying to recount you know, what they were going to do next. And I just said in my mind, I was like, we just got to be better. I can't keep watching this happen. It, it just, this happened so much. It was like this, these poor people. I was like, what are they going to do? I was like, we've got to be better. I didn't really know. I mean, I, and I knew about the company IDHS. I, I've had some uh, longtime friends that, that have worked here. Um, and so I've been a cheerleader of the work that they've been doing for years. I just didn't know that I'd end up here. Um, but that was in 2018. And even then I was starting to kind of transition in my thinking. I was like, it's just like rinse and repeat, unfortunately, with some of these vulnerable communities. And I was like, there's, we've got to be able to do something better. Um, and so once I got here to IBHS, I mean, I, I didn't fully understand how, um, how significant this problem is. I think one of the most telling things that I learned when I came here was that not every state in the United States has a mandated statewide building code. And I'm going to say that again. This is the United States in every single state, all 50 states, not all of them have a statewide mandated building code. Mm -hmm. So that means that some states don't have one. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have a code at all, although some smaller uh, jurisdictions might not, um, these unincorporated areas, but there are structures probably in them that aren't built to a code. Um, but I think we take what built to code means for granted. I think I think we take it for granted a little bit because in a different state, that might mean something different um, because it matters. One, is that code implemented on statewide level or local level, local jurisdictions? Um, and then how well is it enforced? OK, well, if it's enforced, but how old is the code? Like which one have they adopted? Because every three years there's there's a new code cycle. There are updates made. Which how which one is your state operating off of or your locality uh, local? operating off of. And there's different answers for different places where you live. And so it, even when I bought my townhome here, townhome here, it made me think it was like, what's in those walls? Like, is my, are my walls bolted to the foundation? Like, do I have a, a wind rated garage door? I do actually, I'm lucky. Um, and it's like, do I have good shingles on my roof? Like, what's my roof? Is it a fortified roof? And the answer to that is no. Um, but it's just all these questions that you didn't know to ask. And I just took it for granted because all oh, these townhomes are built in 2014. So, you know, yeah, they're, they're good, but I don't know what the code is here. I'd never looked at it before. Yeah. So it's just that realization that like the building codes, they're, they're not equal across parts of the country. And it depends on too, let's say we'll, t- we'll take the Kentucky tornadoes from December uh, 2021, um, for example. That was the first severe event that happened 
um, after I had joined here at, at IDHS about two weeks afterward. And we ended up doing a show for our insurance members on that one. And I got to kind of dig into the damage that that had occurred. So it was, it was, this was unique because I got to see the storm now from my broadcast meteorologist side who had covered this for more than a decade. And I knew what I would say about these images. But now that I'm in this studio, right here where we did this, I'm now telling a different story. I'm now looking at the structural things that failed in these homes. And I'm mm -hmm. saying this didn't hold up. This did hold up. Here's why. Here's how it could have been better. So you now look at it from rather than a, um, an, a storm aftermath. This is what the forecast led to and how the weather played out and the, the aftermath that, that um, took place. Um, but now I'm looking at that. Okay, now let's look at the building features that made this home fail. Could it have been prevented? And sometimes the answer was yes. If these um, small, um, we'll call them concessions hadn't been made here, which, you know, there might not have been a negative motivation there, but they didn't know that that still left that home very vulnerable. So let's say maybe now the home's roof comes off because it wasn't strapped down properly. It was built to code, but that code didn't require it to have like, you know, fasteners or hurricane clips or whatever to the roof. Roof fails, then the rest of the home becomes more susceptible. So it's now pivoting that message and all of this, it's a whole new world over here. And it's like, it's like relearning everything I already learned about weather. It's like, there's just so many other things I didn't know. I yeah. didn't know. And, yeah. and so now it's, I will say this last year has been um, a massive learning curve because, um, and at IBHS, we have to understand not only how the perils affect our built environment, that's what our research is focused on. We also have to understand that from an insurance perspective, from reinsurance perspective, um, from you know a housing and, and grant program for perspective, financial perspective, um, and, and building engineering, all of that gets wrapped into everything that we do here. Um, and then there's an educational aspect to that. So yeah. it's a lot. Um, and the the people that work here, um, I will say, I have learned so much from them. The scientists here, um, the, the the carpentry team, our operations teams, I mean, they're just full of knowledge. And it's just you want to tell everybody about it and be like, we can build better and build safer. Yeah. Um, we just got to get people to make the make the call and let's just do it. You know? Yeah. And, that, and there it is. So I, you said that uh, we don't know what we don't know. And yeah fully understand that. Um, so I'm curious for, for listeners of this podcast and just kind of the general public, um, had a, I had a great conversation with you and uh, one of your coworkers, Armand, and uh, we were laughing because in real estate, which is my, my day job, uh, it's all about location, location, location. And you guys said that for what you do, it's all about education, education, education. So I'm just curious for listeners um, and for the general public, what do you guys at IBHS want people to know? Yeah, so we just we just want people to know that um, I guess the power. You know, we talked about the the power of weather, yeah. um, and and yes, Mother Nature Mother Nature wins as far as it's an unstoppable force. But what we can, the way that we can fight those battles and and get the wins for ourselves, is to be able to improve our building codes and build stronger, um, and get people to understand that. Even if there are um, additional costs that might come with that, when you consider the value of a home, some of these are pennies on the dollar and you can't think like, why wouldn't you do this? Um, but I think it's that lack of understanding and knowledge. It's like, well, how do I implement that? I mean, how do I pivot my entire um, organization or my, you know, my, my entire business model and now say, oh, I've got to flip the switch and we've all got to do that. We understand that that change is not easy, but the change is valuable uh, and it matters. Um, and we know that uh, chipping away at it is really going to make a difference. Um, and we've, we've seen uh, just recently in Hurricane Ian, um, we saw the impact that building codes had on how those structures performed in this storm versus, say, Hurricane Andrew back in 1992, which was really the impetus for how the Florida building code became the behemoth that it is today. Um, they have made so much progress in that state, um, and they're one of the leaders uh, in the nation in, as far as building codes and, and the most updated codes that are um, adopted there. Um, and they're kind of at the forefront of incorporating those mitigation actions that we've proven here at IDHS make a difference in, in home resilience. Um, and so that is kind of the story, right? 
we want to use these negative events and learn from them and build better the next time so that we're not telling the same story over and over because we've, we've got to do it. We owe people that um, so that they have safe communities that they can rely on that can withstand the storm. And it doesn't have to be, you know, any F2 tornado that wipes out your entire home. Uh, you can build that home to withstand such a force. Um, and we just want people to know how to do that. And we're, we're happy to have those conversations and, and get those, get those, um, get those conversations started with people. Yeah. Well, it's great work that you guys are doing the research that you're doing and the message that you're sharing. It's fantastic. I want to pivot real quick uh, as we kind of wrap up here. This is a podcast that's largely about adventure. I yeah. love adventure. Um, but I will be, uh, one of the first to admit that the weather frightens me. Um, yeah. you know, I love to be out camping when the sun is shining and it's warm and it's comfortable, but weather frightens me, especially as you said, lightning and thunderstorms. So I want to ask you for those that are listening that want to follow that voice that calls them to adventure and they maybe want to, they want to get outside. They want to go camping. They want to do stuff, but they're mm -hmm. maybe letting fear of the weather stop them. What advice would you have? Yeah, you know, I think it's all right. It's all about education, right? Just I think knowing when it is safe to go outside. I mean, being aware. We we talk about this in our, um, you know, we we do interviews for um, for for local media and, and national media. You know, trying to get people prepared ahead of uh, impending weather events. And we always tell them to make sure to have a plan and you know know the forecast. Be aware of your surroundings. And I think that's what's important. You can find those times to go out. But I mean, I, I've seen uh, several stories. You know, you see these these shows, and and I'll just invoke the Weather Channel just because I used to work there. Um, but these like survival stories where people, oh, I, we got caught in this snowstorm. We didn't know um, that, that the weather was going to get that bad. And so it's just one of those things. Just make sure that you're aware of the forecast, you know, follow your National Weather Service offices, making sure that um, you're updated on the latest forecast so that you're not putting yourself uh, in a situation where you like you get caught unaware and you're like, wow, I didn't know there were thunderstorms today. Um, if there are thunderstorms in the forecast on a summer afternoon, maybe don't find yourself out uh, on the lake without any shelter nearby uh, without any way to get a weather warning. Uh, make sure that you've got uh, your weather uh, warnings available. You got your cell phone on you all the time, right? Um, so make sure you've got those apps that are working and, and just make a plan, right? Have supplies, have some snacks and, and things that in case you get in trouble, you've got something uh, to, to kind of rely back on. But just being aware um, and having a plan, that's probably the best thing. Don't, don't let the weather uh, keep you inside. Thank you for that. Okay, so this this whole life that started with a movie and then took you through this whole amazing journey and and now you're helping people. Sarah, at some point Hollywood's going to pick up on this and they're going to want to make a movie <laughs> about you. I get that it started with a movie, but your life is there's going to be a movie. And I, I want to know when when Hollywood makes a movie about you, who's going to be the actress that's going to play you? You know, I thought about this one. Um and, and I'll, I'll say this, I think that, well, first of all, you mentioned Twister 2 earlier. I did hear that this is in the making and there has oh, well. been a director. Don't think I've not reached out to this guy multiple times <laughs> volunteering to be in this movie because yes. I have. Um, so if, if Twister 2 happens, and, and if you're listening, I'm still up for that, by the way. Um, <laughs> but I would say, because I've had this comparison made about me, now it's a character, the actor that plays the character, but I would say Helen Hunt. Helen Hunt. The reason, okay. the reason I say Helen Hunt yeah. is because of Twister, right? Yes. But um, I have actually kind of done that. I have, yes, been hanging out the back of a pickup truck, turning on an instrument. I have done that. Um, I'm in love with the weather. Uh, I'm not going to risk my life for it. I'm, you know, I don't have that. I don't have the uh, other issues that she has, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I understand the passion that is there. Um, and I thought she played that character so well. So, you know, if I identify with her, why not Helen Hunt? Let's, let's do it. Uh, what's your movie going to be called? Oh, you know, I, I might be having a cop out on this one cause it's already the title of something else, but I don't know that it's not wrong. Um, Thunderstruck. Thunderstruck. I don't think that it's, yeah, I don't think that it's not wrong. I mean, I know there's that Thunderstruck song, right? Uh, but I, I think that that's got to be the title because, I mean, we talked about awe before and I just yeah. find myself in awe. And, you know, sometimes it's like a bolt of lightning. You're like, wow, that's really cool. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say Thunderstruck is probably what I would call it. Man, I love the passion. I'm getting chills. Thunderstruck starring <laughs> Helen Hunt. 
I am definitely going to see that movie. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. And I suspect <laughs> that somebody, some 13 year old is going to see that movie and be inspired and then go on to save the world. It's going to be yeah. incredible. So I hope it so. All, <laughs> it all comes full circle. Um, Sarah, if people want to uh, find out more about you, IBHS, the work that you guys do, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah, you can uh, you can find me on social media. Um, I'm on Twitter and at Sarah Dillingham. Um, I can't remember my Instagram name yet. I want to say I'm uh, Sarah D. Weather or something like that. I changed it since I was on uh, cool. uh, at IBHS. But then you could also reach out to me on email at sdillingham at ibhs.org. And I'll, I'll get your questions answered. Hopefully, if you got anything you want to know about IBHS or uh, my career or you know how you can get involved in this kind of stuff too, I'm happy to happy to share that knowledge. Oh, thank you so much for showing people what happens when you follow your passion and how you can turn your passion into purpose. This was such a fun conversation. And for those listening, I hope you have been inspired today as much as I have. I hope that Sarah's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or just need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thanks for listening. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. This was awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. This was a lot of fun.